he gets shot in the face with other people's finger lasers, and it doesn't hurt him. Does he have finger lasers of his own? He also has his own finger lasers. Of course he does, because he's a sun soul monk. Dangerous Blues Traveler, Harmonica Solo, in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 146 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're revisiting a favorite topic as we pitch a few plot hooks for your adventures at home. But first, the rogue traders have a flashback in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, Goku surpasses 9,000 in the Character Creation Forge. So this is the third round of plot hooks that we have done on the show. And plot we, hooks, three ducks. We are, we are running out of options for where to host this one. We're now hosting it in a Blues Traveler song. <laughs> where else do you find hooks? <laughs> <laughs> oh, a haberdashery. That's the fourth one. That's the fourth one. A milliner. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, if it weren't already audio related and therefore like to on brand we could say like a hip-hop song okay that's but, plot hooks number six but you know the mundangerous recording studio is just the I usual place taken. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the mundangerous your living room right <laughs> um in other uh somewhat interesting gaming news games workshop has announced a rogue trader skirmish game yeah, coming out mm, late 2018. Yeah, whatever. Uh, the point is, it is Rogue Trader themed, and that means that it has Rogue Trader models, and that means we might finally have proper models for our Rogue Trader game. Yeah, they're pretty amazing looking. Actually, also terrifying looking because there's a bunch of, you know, flesh zipper zombies. Well, those are the sloth. Who are... Because the sloth, to those who do not know, that does not sound very threatening. Think slaughter, but with an H on the end. <laughs> ah, not, uh, not cuddly and slow <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> with moss and lichen growing on their back. No, not those guys. But also horrid Xenos. Yeah, sloth are like tech zombies. They're like biotech creatures that eat brains. Like techno zombies? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> well, not like that, uh, no. Uh, they're not EDM zombies. Those are just base heads. <laughs> Um, but what's cool about Roland that? Roland Molly. Yeah. So what's cool about the sloth is that they were created by Dark Heresy First Edition. So they they didn't exist in 40k lore before Dark Heresy, and now like Games Workshop is mining the RPG for ideas to introduce into the main game line, which is like kind of a Star Wars convergence. Yeah, very wise. Uh, I think uh, it's a good idea to sometimes go back to the well rather than trying to recreate things from whole cloth yeah um in all of the links you'll find online people mistake them for being a nurgle cult which yeah kind of i could i see that i mean they're light on pus yeah but they are very sewn together (laughs) (laughs) um anyway so we'll put a link to that in the show notes there's a lot of high-res images of the models and they look gorgeous all right, speaking of gross Xenos, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Dead World Malajact, 
The rogue traders and their two best companies of armsmen have located the Verza House, an ancient obsidian fortress once occupied by the fallen dark angel, Lord Cypher. Whom we have not met, but who definitely sucks because this place is awful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, in, and in fact, you're going to be a little bit further away from meeting him because in this episode, you are taking a flashback. Um, not too far, just to the day before, but... As has been established in our group, we sometimes have attendance problems and we move forward in the campaign uh, without those people there. But in this particular one, um, since you guys had had those trials and tribulations the first night that you slept in the Verza house, it only seemed fair that when you and Steph and Cam showed up to the first session in the Verza house that you should get a flashback of what your night was like. So not long ago... Our quartermaster Echo was lying awake in her bedroll, trying to rest, but getting none, and ending up staring at the ceiling. There's a soft glow of the lamps that light the house, but it slowly pulses in an unsettling way. It's like rising, and then falling, and then rising, and then falling, and then rising, and then falling. Almost like it's breathing. Doc gets some sleep, but he keeps seeing recurring visions and he's not getting much rest. And it's the same vision that many of the men are having over and over again. Dried skulls in a dusty valley with their tops chopped off. Yeah, the problem here is that Doc doesn't really believe in fate or, you know, gods or luck or <laughs> the emperor or um visions or any of those types of things he only believes in science and now he's seeing recurring visions this i'm sure a reasonable explanation <laughs> right <laughs> the idea was planted into my mind inception how about trank how's he getting along he keeps chanting one of the refrains that company six sings because the death rate is so high uh they you know sometimes like to make fun of it you know, uh, marching chants like, Talk to Trank to get your fix. Won't live long in Company 6. <laughs> so, Company <laughs> 6 is your assault company of armsmen. And yeah, as as you mentioned, has a high death rate. Uh, I think this was coined back with uh, with the death of Sergeant or of Captain Severin, right? With the uh, Severin Slayer. Mm -hmm, yep, and then they were always the ones that we just sent into the hottest combats because, you know, you don't expect them to live long anyway. Yeah, they're the assault company. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of became their, like, their call to action was, like, they start chanting, right? And the survivors of it sort of always remember it. Yeah, fighting demons with big sticks won't live long in Company 6. <laughs> So the morning of the attack, since Flair hasn't been able to reach the Inquisitor to notify her that you've found the Verza house, Doc gets to work on the Voxcaster, trying to reach her, you know, technologically uh, to signal her. He can't. No, he never makes contact. Um, you know, the atmospherics, the weird material in the house, the um, Voxcaster that is suddenly misbehaving frequently. Um, all of these kind of combine to make it very, very difficult to get any kind of signal, um, even within like the furthest reaches of the house, much less, you know, kilometers away um, at your base camp. Okay, so the Vox just gives off static the whole time, right? It does. Until uh. he starts to hear a voice kind of bleeding over the channel, like almost like 
you know how when you're dialed into like you want to dial into 99.7 but if you dial into 99.6 you can still kind of hear it I hope most of our listeners understand what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> listeners over the age of um, 20 <laughs> who who remember radio before the internet. With dials. <laughs> With dials. Right. And not just buttons. <laughs> yeah. So like he's got this voice that's bleeding over that's very difficult to tune to. So he focuses on it and, and starts playing with the Voxcaster. And eventually he's able to make out some words. Hello? Is anyone out there? Are we the last ones left alive? It's a familiar voice, though, because it belongs to the Honor Guard's chief comms officer, Lieutenant Castus, who happens to be standing right next to Doc. And then, shooting begins in the upper casements, and you all know what happens next. Fighting, and then fighting in the basements, and then tricks and Flair chase after them down a tunnel, and then they trigger a booby trap, and now tricks and Flair have been separated. And we'll find out what happens to them next week. So this week, we are discussing plot hooks. So Ishan, what makes a good plot hook? Well, it's a bit of information that you are giving to your players or that you're offering to your GM or the other uh, players at the table uh, that inspires them and gets you and the rest of the party excited to play. Uh, Ideally, a good plot hook has... Mm, I guess for lack of a better term, many different barbs. Like it can draw different players in a variety of different directions depending on how they interpret it or how their individual characters each react to the same uh, scenario or stimulus. Yeah, and then also a good plot hook has to be actually manageable within the parameters of an RPG. So like it would be nice, but you'll never be able to run the Da Vinci Code because as it turns out, you pretty much have to be writing a novel to pull that off. And God is dead. Well, so it doesn't yeah, work. Right. Yeah. Dan Brown killed him. Mm-hmm. Ritually. It was really kind of terrifying and gross. But really, it was just to point the way to his own murderer. Oh, wait. Was that the third book? I have no idea. <laughs> Are there three? <laughs> uh, I think so. I like how, spoiler alert, in the first book, he meets like Jesus's great, 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 great granddaughter. And then in the second book, she's just gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work out. I don't know. <laughs> Especially for a book about the sacred feminine, right? <laughs> Made a ton of sense. The sacred expendable. Right. <laughs> oh, Dan Brown. <laughs> the sacred just a feminine. <laughs> okay, so Shane, give our listeners the first plot hook. So a new and untamed continent has suddenly appeared in the endless ocean and brought with it a mystical new substance, residuum, capable of amplifying magic. Um, that's not going to cause any problems. No. So the idea here is you've got like, you know, fishermen are out. They discovered a lost continent filled with like jungles and ruins and riches and this resource residuum, which is like magic dust, right? It's kind of a MacGuffin, but the point is it's super powerful and everybody is going to want it. Uh, The continent doesn't have any intelligent or sapient inhabitants, but it does have, like, natural dangers as well as, like, predators and, you know, strange new creatures in it. And all the existing nations of the world are going to, like, see this as a risk to their balance of power, and the land grab is going to begin. Yeah, I think particularly the most powerful nations will be the hungriest. 
for this because they have the most to lose. You know, so the the question that is presented not just to the party, but to the entire world, to the setting itself is who is going to go to war with whom? Who's going to side with whom in this land grab? Yeah. And which side do your players pick? Or do they get to pick a side? Or are they already entrenched in one and thrown into this land war? Yeah, or are they going to try and like go alongside so they'll go alone and build a mercenary company or try and build their own trading empire, you know, like create a shipping guild or something like that? Yeah, I like that there are a lot of different ways to go about this depending on um, the particular qualities of the resource that's discovered, right? Is, is it highly portable is it, is it extremely heavy like is this something that is more like um, finding a vein of silver where you need a large number of people to move something relatively heavy or is it you know truly magical where you're sort of stumbled into you know if you coated yourself in this residuum or like bathed in a pool of it would you absorb it all and is there a limit to how much a single person can absorb I kind of like the idea of that one of the fishermen who initially stumbled on it is like now an extremely powerful warlord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you've, you've turned it into cocaine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, except it gives you 17 levels of warlock. Right. <laughs> Magical brown brown. <laughs> Rolling Molly. Um, yeah. And then, you know, whatever the players are doing at some point, someone is going to ask, why did this happen? And then you get to figure out what greater hidden threat looms as a result of this uh, continent reappearing, right? Like, why did it suddenly show up here? And what would make that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, the question I would like to ask is, why is it still here? You know, is it just that it's remote and hidden and no, like, sapient species on the entire planet has discovered it before? Or is there some repercussion or drawback or some other very bad thing that has made it so that no one else has gotten here and exploited this yet yeah i i like the idea that it like that's why i like fishermen because fishermen like go to the same place every season to fish right like they have fishing grounds and so like the fleet goes out one year and says uh there's land where we used to fish (laughs) like it's suddenly there yeah it's new what's going on (laughs) right yeah This reminds me um, of one of the central conceits of Deadlands, where you have this new resource, Ghost Rock. Right. And one of the questions is, where the heck did it come from? Turns out, where the hell did it come from is a really more appropriate Mm -hmm. question. Yep. (laughs) So, with all of this in mind, Shane, if you were going to run this plot hook, how would you do it at a table? So, I would... So, in terms of system and level, I think I would stick with, like, a D&D or fantasy type game um and i would pick like a an established campaign setting that the players already kind of liked that had like good political definition because there is kind of a political question at heart around like the land grab right um so i'm thinking something like midgard or eberron or even birthright would be interesting and then probably want to be like level five or so um or maybe even a little bit higher just so your characters have enough agency to really pursue this new opportunity or new threat however they want yeah i think at that by the time you're at that level the pcs are not just cannon fodder sort of in the way of larger happenings in the world they actually have enough agency where they could 
say, all right, we're going to strike on our own and try to exploit this in some way, or, hey, we're going to hire ourselves out because we have skills that are useful in this new war or in this new, like this new trade war that's that's occurring. Right. Uh, And then in terms of length, I mean, I think that depends on sort of what the, what the reason is that this continent has suddenly appeared, right? Like if it's a looming threat, it just depends on how immediate that threat is, right? Like if this continent has suddenly appeared because, you know, a demigod or some deity has like willed it into existence, like as part of its invasion of your world, well, maybe that's going to be a short kind of campaign arc. Um, but if it's really just something more benign or, or happenstance or, or whatever, like less looming, then you could really run your whole campaign around this concept for years. I like to think of this as um, the very end of the Green Age in Dark Sun, where fishermen stumble upon uh, some blighted land. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's this new source of power, Arcana. Right. <laughs> Everything is great. <laughs> Let's just use this a lot. You can just absorb the magic from anywhere. <laughs> right. And like it's unlimited. <laughs> All right. So what are the some of the, some of the challenges of running this type of scenario? So this is going to be very sandboxy. Um you're basically Especially if you're playing in Dark Sun. <laughs> well, okay. Everything is sandy in Dark Sun. Um but you'll need to kind of follow the sandbox protocol. So you need to establish some shiny points of interest for the players to grab their attention. Uh, and you'll probably end up having to like over prep because your players won't necessarily commit to going to one of them at a time. Um, so you'll have to have an idea of like any direction they could go. Right. Yeah. This is definitely one of those situations where you like, once they discover this stuff, then you're going to want to do intercession communication and saying, where do you guys think you're going to go? Cause I don't want to have to prep like four encounters in four different nations because you're on fishing boats right at the same time if you are running this in an established setting which is probably the best idea you do run the risk of mm, ruining or turning that setting on its head and having players who really love it not being happy with the changes that you've made yeah and the the challenge to that specifically i think is like even if the characters don't want to hold like birthright sacred or or whatever or even like forgotten realms right like even if that's not sacred to them they still have to have enough familiarity with that core setting to like get the political implications and ramifications and for that to land and have effect so it can be it's going to be difficult to like put all the investment up front to understand like what are all these nations and what what does that all mean and what is like the current state just for you to be like and by the way we're blowing that up day one (laughs) like the the whole concept here is like you learn it and then you never get to use it as is i mean you need to know this stuff it's not like you're going to walk around with a calculator in your pocket everywhere you go once you're an adult (laughs) right yeah it runs into the situation where like the ideal player for this is kind of someone who's like middle of the road knowledgeable about it because if they know nothing about it then they don't understand what the hell is going on or what are the implications and if they know too much they're over committed to the lore itself yeah yeah And then lastly, anytime you're running a game that uh, is sort of focused around discovery, especially of new lands, you run into the possibility of um, finding yourself running a game of colonialism, which usually sucks for everyone. Uh, Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, to me, it's okay to colonize Mars. It's not okay to colonize, you know, an inhabited nation with 
people on it. So um, don't. <laughs> That's why I made sure that there was no one living on this mysterious island. Yeah, you still get a lot of parallels, even if it's like, oh, don't worry, they're only Sahagin. <laughs> well, those are sentient <laughs> creatures. <laughs> right. And, and then after a while, someone goes, oh, this sounds really familiar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. You were somebody else's goblins once. <laughs> Um, just, yeah, if, if you're thinking of like any alien invasion story from the aliens perspective, right? Like that's what you end up with. All right, Ishan, what's your first plot hook? So I call this one all in the family and it was actually inspired by our episode that we did on playing elves, uh, because elves are so long lived um, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but the premise of this is that there is a family curse. Every however many years, let's say 70 years if you're humans or whatever, all but one member of your family is brutally murdered. No one really knows how it's happening, but for the last several generations, the clan has tried to prevent these massacres. Um, you know, they've uh, tried to cast spells or auguries. They've uh, all tried to run away. And no matter what happens, every 70 years, every single person in the extended family uh, except for one dies no matter where they are no matter what they're doing no matter how tough they are how rich they are they're found dismembered uh, or died, died of fright or, or drowned terribly all on the same night and now the time is at hand again and the party is playing estranged family members who have decided this year they're going to gather in a pact of mutual defense and they're going to survive the night so, of course, this is more like a mystery game because the first thing that you're going to want to try to figure out is who's trying to kill all of you and how are they doing it? Right. And, of course, since uh, you're all family members and everyone is thrown back together, uh, the question is, do the old squabbles that caused you to be estranged in the first place, do those resurface? Like, you live in a difficult family. Uh Everyone gets murdered. Right. <laughs> and then the one surviving person, you know, they go on eventually to, to have a family. And then, you know, they have more family. And everyone has this this curse hanging over their heads. Hey, I might have a decent life. And maybe even my kid has a decent life. But they're, they're not going to make it to retirement age. And my grandchildren, they're definitely going to die. Except for one random one. Uh, and that uh, puts some pressure on people. Maybe makes them a little bit crazy. Or does it turn out that through this night, um, you're all able to band together in some way to figure out the mystery, figure out who's coming after you, and figure out how to stop them? I like this. This is like uh, Clue, the elven RPG. <laughs> With lead pipes. Right. Every single one of them. Well, I, I also like the idea that like this is just uh, a long-running artifice that... like. You know, the the lone survivor is the one who realizes that the family is killing itself each cycle and uh, has to be the initiator of the next cycle, right? Like, everyone gathers and thinks they're all going to die because the one survivor has had to murder his entire family and is here to murder his entire family again. <laughs> See, it, one of the things I like about this is it's not set in stone um what is the reason behind this? And right. it's perfectly reasonable to have one of the characters be a plant. Right. Or to have none of them, right? To have, um, you know, 
one of the people who said, no, I don't want to be a part of this. You're all just going to die and I'm running away. Have them be the one who has showed up and how they get in. Well, they have keys because you're family. Right. Or, you know, it's some outside influence or whatever, right? There's plenty of possibilities. Yeah. Well, the thing that inspired me in the first place was um, we had talked about how, you know, elves can hold grudges for a very long time. And so they can essentially like hate an entire family of humans for generations and generations. I like to think that like 500 years ago, someone screwed over a devil and that devil is smart enough to know that it's more fun to play with your food. So don't just kill the whole family, kill all but one. Right. <laughs> and then let them live, let them have something to, to strive for, to hope for, and then kill all of them but one and do it again. This is fun. I've been doing this for centuries. Right. <laughs> How are they getting in? Teleport. Right. It, does not matter oh also it's a devil it's called heliport <laughs> uh, a heliport no that's different <laughs> that's how that's how the chief executive comes in <laughs> i know it's easy to get them confused but the devil is totally different <laughs> why do you think there's a big h on the ground it goes to hell um so in terms of running this uh i think this sets up perfectly as a one shot or like a con game yeah, I think it it's a nice thing where you've got four to six people who maybe actually don't really know each other in real life. And you plant uh, on the table, you know, a bunch of different pre-gen characters and go, great, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the first 20 minutes figuring out your ties to each other. We're going to f- draw the family tree, figure out who's who, how you know each other. Um, why don't you like each other? Um and then we'll go from there, um, figuring out how you're going to make it through the night, what you showed up with. And then at, at a con game, um, you you have the premise that you're sort of, you have to use whatever you're given. Uh, so it, it you can make it a bit more of a survival game, right? Okay, you guys are holding up here. That's great. Here's the material that you have. Whereas if it's like a longer campaign, then you have people who are like, oh, but I bring 150 feet of rope, of course. Right. Uh, and 19 scrolls. And I definitely run it as like a mystery uh, slash investigation game. Like the most important thing to figure out is why is this happening? Because that's the only way you can figure out how to stop it. But you can also certainly run it as a as a horror game. Um, it it's probably not a great idea to be picking people off one at a time like you would in a horror movie, just because then that person is bored. Well, you can you can do it like um, using dread. Right with with the Jenga tower, because mm. that that tends to keep people engaged even after after they're eliminated. That's true. If you have something that you can do, even though you are dead, or or in dread, sometimes you're not dead yet, right? You just know that you're doomed. Right, right. So actually, yeah, I really like I like that way of thinking about it. That like you won't die, but now there's the dramatic irony where like you know you won't live. Yeah, the right. player knows that like you're not going to make it through the session alive, and the the character just has this sense of impending doom right um in terms of challenges i think you you touched on it with character creation but making sure that that family tie is important to the player is going to be i think a challenge because you know this is all tied up on like that emotional kick of you know our family has trouble but we're family and yet we're going to die together and like we have to bury the hatchet or whatever right and like that means you've got to be emotionally invested to get that kick. 
Yeah, and, and you get potentially some of the same problems you have with running any kind of family member characters. Like, you know, Shane, you and I played a pair of brothers in a game one time. And what did we do when uh, danger surfaced? We locked ourselves inside the car and let our <laughs> compatriots get <laughs> slaughtered. <laughs> but in our defense, we only <laughs> locked the doors on them when they refused to get in. <laughs> it's true. And only once we realized that we were completely useless in the scenario. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, if you're like a con game and, you know, two of the people know each other or actually probably worse would be if four of the people know each other and one, and one person doesn't, doesn't yeah. then it it you have to watch out to make sure that the one person is not being shunted aside and essentially used as like bait. All right, Shane, what is your next plot hook? I call this one the Archduke's Gambit. So the Archduke is plotting against the king. His shadowy forces move in the shadows. Yep, just said that twice. (laughs) (laughs) You know, shadows within shadows, plans within plans. His shadowy forces move behind the scenes, lining up all the moving parts for the coup until they're ready to strike. And now everything is in place, except for the final critical piece, some MacGuffin of great import that's being smuggled into the capital in three days. Now... If the PCs were to get their hands on that MacGuffin, they would wield quite a bit of power, wouldn't they? Because not only is it a powerful MacGuffin, it also holds the king's life in the balance. So can they track it down and intercede and boost the MacGuffin? And if they can, now what? What do they do with it? Oh, that that's the fun part, right? Is the You know at the beginning of like a heist movie, there the character's always like, oh, what are you going to do with your share? Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get a big speaker. I'm going to get a speaker so big it blows women's <laughs> clothes off. Right. Oh, um, uh, we're going to sell it to the king. No, we're going to sell it to the archduke. No, screw that. We're going to kill both of them with this. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is how the elven family got its curse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use this to hire a Serbian, and he's going to kill the archduke. <laughs> That'll end well. Uh, it does. It does have a feeling of like the setup of like the Italian job, <laughs> which is why I gracefully quoted most deaf. Um, like even after Edward Norton steals it, like what can you do with it? It's it's all marked gold. <laughs> um, okay, so how would you run this game? Uh, Blades in the dark. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, like we we've got a crew. Yeah, you've got a crew, you've got a lead, and you've got a heist to pull, and like throw the rest to the wind because this is going to be awesome. Um, and I mean, this would be good as like a one session heist, and then you know the remainder of dealing with the fallout. It's good. It's easy to drop into an existing campaign. Um, but I, I will say, like, if you just trade out like Archduke and King for general and and president in quotes or you know like communist dictator and fascist spy like any number of factions work just fine this can be in any setting it doesn't have to be like a pseudo european fantasy yeah the uh the manchurian knight commander yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) so popular it's a war hero right i mean yeah even like fire this is a perfect firefly plot this is a perfect star wars plot Oh yeah sleeper agent that's great Mm -hmm. yeah yeah any of that works just fine so um i just i love blades in the dark as as the system for playing it out so i stacked it to that setting 
yeah, I think this works really well at the beginning of a, an arc, you know, um, either the beginning of a campaign or, you know, the party has achieved some big objective and now you're beginning like... Um, yeah, you've proved yourself. Stage two. Now you get the real lead. Right. Right? Like, <laughs> cool, you knocked over a bank. Can you knock over a government? <laughs> and this arc... Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't plan it out ahead of time. It would depend on how well the job goes and then what the party decides to do if they actually succeed. Right. All right, but as we know with all heist campaigns there are plenty of challenges. Any specific ones to this? Yeah, I mean, I think because it's it's mixing the political intrigue into a heist, like you not only have to have that like elaborate security that goes around like the MacGuffin itself, but you also have to have an understanding of like what is the larger plot and why is the MacGuffin important and like you know who are all the other players that could be involved and and provide challenges or or whatever. Yeah, that's always the problem with the MacGuffin is if you explain too well what it does and why it does it, um, or like what part of the puzzle it fits into, you always have a player who's like, oh, well, we'll just get this other thing that does the exact same thing. Yeah, exactly. We'll make it our plot. <laughs> Like, wait, th- you know it would be way easier? Not using that MacGuffin. Yeah, I got a MacGuffin-sized key, though. <laughs> <laughs> I know a guy. Um, so, you know, you, you want to have a good idea of that stuff just to provide grounding for it so that it feels authentic and truly conspiratorial. Um, and then I think the other thing to be aware of is, you know, like like we said, like maybe if you were already running a campaign that could kick off a new arc, um, because of the political intrigue angle to the heist, it could turn the campaign into less of a like, you know, stunning heists and outstanding hijinks and, you know, Danny Ocean pulling his last job and much more of like, cool, we're political players now because like the king owes us and these guys hate us and like, you know, now we're private security or, or counterintelligence or whatever. Yeah, like House of Cards is also a good game, but it is very different from Ocean's Eleven. Right. And so you just need to be sure of what kind of game you want to play and what your players want to play. Exactly. And just make sure they stay moving in that direction. So bring us on home, Ishan. What do you got? All right. I call this one Strangers in a Strange Land. Oh, so did Aldous Huxley. He said Stranger. Oh. Huh. Also, wasn't it Heinlein? It was. <laughs> <laughs> Strangers specifically because it's the entire party who are behind enemy lines. Now, specifically, they are somewhere where they have no way of blending in. So the objective of this uh, game or this session or whatever uh, you decide it's going to be is to keep your head down because you can't walk the streets um, because everyone can tell very easily that you don't belong. And that is maybe because of mannerisms. It might be because of species. You know, maybe you're, you know, normal D&D humanoids and you are uh, in a town full of monsters. Um, That's uh, some of that's one of the more interesting plot points you can have in Droam and in Eberron is like, you know, you have a town where ogres and goblins and hobgoblins and harpies and sometimes even a few medusas walk around. Uh, and if you're just like a regular human, you stand out a lot. But there's a reason that you're here, that the party is here. There's some ob- 
objective that they have to accomplish. Maybe that's an assassination of um, an important enemy leader. Maybe it's sabotage for some reason. There's a reason that they can't just leave and they have to stay here. And they're stronger than the individual enemies around them. You know, they're probably like SEAL Team 6. They are, you know, some sort of like special ops unit that has been sent in. But, you know, they're they're in the middle of nowhere with no backup. Like, they cannot be discovered because then it doesn't matter how strong they are individually. The enemy just brings the army. Yeah, this is like when you trip the alarm in GoldenEye. (laughs) (laughs) The enemies don't stop respawning. How do they know I'm not one of them? You're wearing a tuxedo. Right. <laughs> or it's like Inglorious Bastards. Right. Yeah. You you use the wrong uh, finger to count with and all of a sudden you're going hot. Mm-hmm. So the party has to keep asking themselves, you know, who can they trust? Can they even trust anyone? You know, if you are in a, a town full of chaos cultists, you probably can't trust anyone. Well, well, probably not chaos cultists. In this case, it's probably just like uh, separatists, right? people who don't believe in the mm-hmm. Imperium. Or, uh, actually, we talked about this earlier, uh, Garion. So oh, yeah, like a chaos hell world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the the people who are around you um, don't want to be under the yoke of chaos, but that's who's in charge. Right. And they might be slowly being tainted, so who knows? Right. Or like, um, you know, Nazi-occupied Belgium. Most likely, the, the Belgians don't enjoy being occupied by the Nazis, but at the same time, are they going to risk their family? Right. And then you run into this uh, this nice bit of moral ambiguity. Like, how far is your party willing to go to stay hidden? What if they're trying to sneak somewhere and someone who, as far as they can tell, is not sided with the enemy, but they see them? Do you take out an innocent civilian just because they may have seen something? Is the mission that important? Is secrecy that, that um, important? Yeah, Depending on the tone you want to strike, you can also ask that question of the characters themselves, right? Like it might it might hit a point where, man, do you maybe kill a member of your party to leave them behind because you cannot tend to them any further? Right. Or, you know, if there is no healing available, if there are no clerics or there there's no access to a doctor, what do you do if someone's wounded? Even if you don't kill them, do do you leave anyone behind? Or or knowing the mission, do they volunteer to stay behind with the booby trap or whatever, right? Like, do they have the kill switch because you guys go on ahead? Like, I can't make it. Right. Give me all your grenades. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when you hear a big boom, just keep running. <laughs> Blaze of glory, buddy. Blaze of glory. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that mission team kind of flavor. So how would you run it? What uh, What system, what level, what? What would you do? I think uh, Gumshoe or like Knights Black Agents is could work really well for this or would work really well for, well for this because one of the issues that you run into is you've got to stay hidden the whole time. So a system like D&D is super swingy when it comes to most skill checks, right? Like you roll a two on one person's stealth check and suddenly you're found out and now you're in a firefight. That can't happen in this kind of game. Mm-hmm. So you really need a sort of baseline competency. Uh, the other option would be, like, for example, everyone's a high-level rogue, like at least an 11th-level rogue, which would make sense in context. So they have reliable talent stealth and reliable talent deception. Like, you're excellent liars. Um, you're excellent at sneaking about and, and not being seen or heard. It's just what you're good at doing. And there's not really a risk of failure with that. Um, the, the 
challenge for the players doesn't come from, oh, I hope I roll high enough. It, it needs to come from, okay, what are our plans? And like, can we think quickly enough when things go sideways? Yeah, so actually for that reason, I think Genesis is a great candidate here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because you're like not it. as tied to setting, but you are tied to like the cinematic theme of it, right? Of like the last second bailout or like the door that you didn't know was there, right? Or like falling into the fireplace and it turns around sort of thing, right? Um, the whole idea that the characters know more than then the audience, right, plays really well with with the narrative dice of Genesis. So I think that would be a really cool kind of turn. Yeah, I totally agree because with Genesis, if you succeed and then have um, some threat, or even if you fail, the failure doesn't have to mean, oh, you're discovered, right? It can just mean, here's a setback I'm going to throw at you. Right. And that works really well with these types of, like, intrigue stories or like resistance behind the lines right yeah it doesn't mean you trip the alarm it means you aren't going to be able to to break the code so you need to find another way in Mm -hmm. or whatever yeah and obviously when we suggest genesis that means if you can skin it for star wars then either edge of the empire or in this case actually age of rebellion would be really good oh right Um, because you know you've got the duty mechanic yeah yeah like like i mean this would be great for basically playing the last season of rebels right Mm. i would also really like this in a setting it doesn't quite work in deadlands but something like that something sort of old west ish where you're um members of the underground railroad i think that would be a really cool game to play yeah we're like you have to stay silent yeah it doesn't quite work in in deadlands because they got rid of slavery slavery. yeah And, and good for them. <laughs> All right. So there are definitely some challenges in playing this type of game. And the first one is you got to think about your character's alignment. It, you you really want to have, for the most part, a party full of like upstanding characters. Um, people who, like the things that they might have to do or the moral quandaries that they're faced would actually really bother them. Uh, it doesn't need to be everybody, but, you know, I think max one or two people who are sort of like overly pragmatic about getting the mission done is a, is about what you want to have. Otherwise, it just very quickly turns into, okay, we do what we need to do and we're murder hobos. Right. Like, oh, what, what do you do? Oh, I wore his face, you know, because we needed to blend in. Right. So, like, I cut the ogre's head off, I scooped out his brains, and I I wore his head like a hat. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> That's a... Uh... Tonal dissonance, thank you. <laughs> Effective, though. And then I also think over the course of a longer campaign, it can get really tiring having to keep your head down all the time. Like if the first uh, response your character always has to give is, okay, we run away. Okay, we're quiet. Okay, stealth and deception. So I think it's important to sprinkle in uh, occasional firefights or give your players enough agency where they're like they're planning their ops. You know, like, right. okay, we're going to sabotage the dam. Right. And like that can be like a, a big um, like one or two session, like massive firefight before they hunker back down into, OK, now we disappear into the woods. Yeah. And, and keep in mind, like the way to do that is to create loud events around them that allow them to be to also be loud. Right. So if the uh, if the town that they're holed up in comes under attack by their side, well, they can now fight openly for their side and then reinsert behind enemy lines. Right. Stuff like that. Or if they create a distraction with explosives. Right. <laughs> Which really, that's really what they should be doing all the time is, um, 
Explosives? Right. <laughs> no, no, tell me about our C4 supplies. <laughs> oh, what do, how do we hide all this evidence all at once? <laughs> <laughs> One other challenge you can run into here is reinforcement. So when you do run on characters dying, you have to figure out how they can how that player can introduce another character into the campaign when sort of the theme of it was, you know, behind enemy lines, limited supplies, having to keep your head down, you know, you've got to sort of be thoughtful about how you would reintroduce somebody. Mm -hmm. It's possible that you have a larger team than the number of players and that, you know, there were people were essentially sort of telling NPCs what to do. Like, yeah, you're the, the, you know, the grenadier. right? Right. And then they step up as a full PC. Or you have to do the thing where make sure that you cultivate some contacts while you're undercover (laughs) because you might need to recruit them into PC status. (laughs) Also, you might want to have them do stuff because otherwise they're going to be severely underleveled. Right. (laughs) All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? That's the sound of our distraction. Well, then let's sneak into the character creation forge and roll one up before they see us coming. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building a character that needs no introduction, except to me, uh, Goku. Yeah. Shane, who's Goku? I don't know. No? You have no idea? I When I wrote the intro, I wrote, <laughs> he reaches level 3,000. <laughs> you know, 9,000 is over 3,000, so you were correct. I wasn't wrong. <laughs> I just wasn't mimetic. <laughs> All right, so this is week three of anime when we are doing all anime builds in the Character Creation Forge so that we won't have to do any the rest of the year. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Till next May. We're just maylining it. (laughs) (laughs) And so, of course, we had to do Goku, who is probably most people's first introduction to any sort of anime whatsoever. He is the main... Wait, hang on. Hmm? Pokemon? Uh, oh, you're so young. <laughs> I, I No, but I mean, kids nowadays, like Pokemon is our first introduction. Yeah, but kids nowadays, nobody likes them. That's a good point. Yeah, they're, <laughs> not, they're not even millennials. <laughs> um, anyway, okay, continue. So Goku is the uh, main protagonist of the Dragon Ball, uh, Dragon Ball Z, Dragon Ball GT, but we can ignore that, Dragon Ball Super um, anime series. He is a Saiyan and then a Super Saiyan. He's an alien with uh, a great deal of uh, power and uh, uh, strength. He has uh, an ability to control his ki, which is um, the energy inside of all living things. And it enables him to do the typical anime stuff. Although you only think of it as typical anime because Dragon Ball basically started it all. He can fly and he can shoot energy blasts from his hands or from his fingertips and he can uh, stand on the ground and scream for three or four episodes as he gathers up enough power to turn his hair blonde. I mean, he also makes his hair defy physics, so he's really applying himself. That's just pomade. <laughs> it's not pomade. <laughs> Stapper Dan. <laughs> it's like pomade with an underlying wire structure. 
All right. So um, this request for Goku comes from Edgar via email. And Edgar, here's the build. Sun Soul Monk 17, Totem Barbarian 3. So Goku is yet another one of those issues, one of those characters where, like, they can do everything. You know, I think right now in the anime, Goku's punches can, like, the reverberation of one of his punches can destroy multiple universes. Like, that's how ridiculous it's gotten. Oh, okay. That's what level 9,000 means. It really is on a <laughs> 1 to 10 scale. Great. A level 9,000 D&D character, maybe. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's a hell of a scouter to figure out what his power level is right now. <laughs> right. Um, all right, so this is a barbarian, uh, totem barbarian. So we'll get rage and danger sense, and I'm guessing we'll take bear uh, for the damage resistance while raging. That's pretty much the only reason we're doing it, right? Because for the most part, we're not going to be attacking with strength. So the rage damage bonus doesn't do that much for us. Danger sense is nice because you get advantage on those deck saving throws. Um, but we really just want the rage resistance, which makes Goku resistant to not just physical attacks, but also magical ones like other people's key blasts, for example, which he, he has no problem resisting. I have to assume that's accurate. That's right. So Sun Soul Monk gets us unarmored defense, unarmed combat, uh, increased speed. You get the um, kind of iconic monk abilities, deflect missiles, slow fall, uh, flurry of blows. You're getting extra attack. Um, if you've ever seen the anime, you can see that uh, the Saiyan fighting style involves a lot of uh, elbow and knee strikes that for some reason like push all the way through a person's body and like show up out their back. But to me, that looks like a stunning strike. Okay. <laughs> uh, and of course, he gets great uh, defenses like evasion and proficiency in all saving throws. Now, you may think, but Goku is an idiot, and you would be right. However, he does um, strength himself out of uh, conditions that normally should not be able to be strengthed out of, like mind control or telepathy. He, you know, gathers his key in his gut and screams for a little while, and then it's not affecting him anymore. To me, that sounds like a high wisdom saving throw. Yeah, okay, I can see that. He gets Step of the Wind, which eventually lets him essentially run up walls. Uh, we do have a problem where it's tough to get perpetual flight I guess you could reflavor an Aarakocra and then yeah. flying from level one. That makes sense because because of the feathers, you know, on the head, that could be like Goku's hair. Oh, there you go. His feathers are sticking straight up. Yeah. I I dig it. I'm yeah. down with it. Okay. And Aarakocra make great monks. And they're aliens. Yes. Because they're not humans. They're essentially aliens. No human blood at all. No, well, maybe in their stomachs. <laughs> All right, from Sun Soul Monk, uh, at level three, you can use an action to cast a Sunbolt, which is a blast of radiant energy. Now, this is a ranged spell attack. However, it is not a spell, which means that even when you are raging, even when you've decided, ah, it's time to go Super Saiyan, you can still shoot laser blasts from your hands. And if you want, you can flurry with it as well by spending a bit of key. You also get Searing Arc Strike, which, if you pump enough key into it, gets you up to a 7th level Burning Hands, uh, which, well, okay. Look, Goku has dozens of different styles of key blasts. Some of them come out in short-range waves. Um, some of them come out blue. <laughs> some of them come out red. <laughs> this, 
you're really not selling me on this. I gotta be honest. It's okay. You're not the target audience. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> and then searing sunburst at level eleven. You can do what seems like nothing that great. You can uh, drop an area attack. You can charge up and drop an area attack of radiant energy that does two d six damage in a radius. But you can also charge it up with key to get up to eight d six, which is a fireball. So for five key points, you can drop a fireball, which to me sounds very much like a Kamehameha wave. Then as a monk, you'll get Sun Shield, which will help you, uh, (laughs) I guess, what you haven't mentioned is any other Saiyan using this stuff against Goku. So Sun Shield. Yes, because Sun Shield, really, let's be honest, this is for aesthetics. Sun Shield lets you shine brightly at will, which at higher levels, Super Saiyans decide to just stay super the entire time. Stay glowing. (laughs) Yeah, you you just stay glowing. And, of course, uh, when you are giving off uh, enough key energy, if someone does try to get too close to you and hit you, it burns. It hurts. It's that sun shield. It's the sun shield. All right. So that is week three of anime. You're welcome, Shane. Can't see me smiling on a microphone, but I'm doing it. But you definitely are. (laughs) I'm so happy we're doing this. (laughs) I like how one of our listeners was like, oh, great, it's anime. I can save 15 minutes at the end of the episode. And I was like, me too. You know, I bet anime is the reason that we were in the top 200 on uh, Games and Hobbies. Because we just, you throw Sailor Moon into something and you get clicks. I bet. (laughs) That's probably right. Yeah. (laughs) All right. On that note, if you want to. We want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. Shane, did you, when we started this, did you think we would be doing this for 146 weeks in a row? I I absolutely did not. No, I thought I was surprised if we'd make it to six, (laughs) much less 46. (laughs) So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash total party thrill. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Well, if you've been paying attention, you know that the next 5th edition D&D book, Morden Kanan's Tome of Foes, is coming out later this month, and we will have a full cover-to-cover review for you. We are currently busy reading it, scanning it. I hope we like it. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building Edward Elric from Full Metal Alchemist. Well, that's it for episode 146 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.